Well, good morning, everyone. It is a privilege to stand before the Lord and you all today as we have gathered together to worship our Savior. We're going to be studying Psalm 95, so please turn there in your Bibles. And while you're turning there, I have a question for us to think about as we try and set our hearts to worship God. In your heart, as you stand before the Lord, have you given him your complete and undistracted worship so far this morning? Has your gaze been filled with the greatness of your Savior? Are you bursting with joy and eagerness to worship him? Or, as you sit here this morning, as you sing songs of praise, as Hadley prayed, has your mind been assaulted by distractions? Do you find your eyes wandering and looking at the things of life instead of the creator of life? Friends, I am convinced and convicted that God cares about our focus and He desires our worship. He is great. His name is great. Isaiah 42 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Friends, God demands our worship. And my conviction is that when we come to God with distracted worship, we are dividing God's glory with something or someone else. And when we divide God's glory, that means that we rob him of worship that he is worthy of. And God cares deeply about that. Exodus 34, 14 says he is a jealous God. His demand is that we worship nothing but him. Think about that for a moment. Do you worship only God? You'd probably say, yes, of course, I don't bow down to idols. But let me ask you this. What dominates your thinking? What do you like to think about? What controls your wallet? When you have free time or extra money, what are you excited to do? You see, the things that we dream about and plan for and spend money on and make time for are the things that consume us. And we will see this morning that what consumes us should be the greatness of God in light of his goodness, and we should worship him. These are convicting thoughts to me, and as we open God's word, we're going to see that his standards for worship are often far above our own. And my prayer is that as we study Psalm 95, that we will see the greatness and the goodness of God and worship him for that. John Stott said that true worship is the highest and noblest activity of which man, by the grace of God, is capable of. Worshiping God is the best thing that we can do. But do we believe that? That's convicting to my heart. I don't know about you, but I want to worship God better. 
I want to see God in his word. I want to see his glory as he sees fit to reveal it to us. And I want to be consumed with who he is. I want all of my life to be a pleasing worship to my Savior. And if you are saved, friend, then I am confident that the cry of your heart, even though it may be buried under layers of sin and neglect, is to worship your Maker and Savior as well. And if that is your desire, if the longing of your heart is to worship God, then I would invite you to look and see how to worship God in Psalm 95. You see, in Psalm 95, we see the heart of a true worshiper of Yahweh. We see that joy in the Lord is what consumes their mind. We see that worship of the Lord is their delight. And we see that reverent submission and trusting obedience in the Lord characterizes their life. And we see a warning from God if we do not worship, but harden our hearts instead. So as we seek to honor God and his word, I would invite you to stand while I read Psalm 95. Psalm 95 verse 1 says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, as we stand in your presence, I would beg you, please, strip our eyes off of everything but you this morning. Father, you are big and powerful. Would you allow us in your mercy, to see your greatness and your goodness, because you are worthy of our worship. And Lord, we must do that. And I trust that we want to do that. So please work in our hearts and give us that desire to respond to who you are with worship and joy and praise. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated as we get into the psalm and look at our first points. Let's see our invitation to worship God. We worship God because he invites us to worship him. Verse 1 starts with, O come, let us sing to the Lord. 
Three times the psalmist says come in English in verses 1 and 2 and 6. But in Hebrew, there are three different words that are used. In verse 1, this word come means to approach. This is a command. It's a very strong demand from the psalmist. It really leaves you with no choice. It is saying we must come. You must approach the Lord and sing to him. In verse 2, the Hebrew word for come means to come in front of or to meet. This moves from merely approaching him to being drawn close to him. And in verse 6, the word come means to go in, like someone would enter a house. This is a very personal invitation to come in before the Lord. There's an intimacy here, a closeness of relationship. And I hope you see the progression. Our Lord, the King, commands us to come to Him. He expects our obedience, but He also longs for us to come and dwell in His presence. That should be amazing to our hearts. Right now, as you sit here, you have been commanded to come into the very presence of Yahweh, the God who sits on high on his throne and sees into your hearts. You can hide nothing from him. That God, knowing who you are, and because of what he has done, would have you come into his presence and worship him. That's amazing. We cannot worship God if we are far off. We must come to him. He would have you put off sin and sing his praise. Other people in the world, they sing about their gods of money or gratification or success or power, but we sing to Yahweh. We love him, we admire him, we revere him, we adore him, and in verse 1, we are reminded that we do these things when we sing to him. There are many beautiful sounds in creation, aren't there? The singing of birds, the babbling of brooks, the rushing of a waterfall, the thundering of storms. But of all creation, we alone have been created with reason and language and creativity. And that is so we can worship our God. As we have been instructed to come to God, the rest of verse 1 says, Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. In the Legacy Standard Bible, this is translated, let us make a loud shout. The Hebrew word has this idea of suddenly crying out. As we come to God and as we catch the glimpse of his glory that he would allow us to have, worship is spontaneous. It erupts from our hearts. It cannot be contained. And in those moments as we see our God, we don't want to contain it. This loud shout comes from a heart that responds to God with passionate joy. And this joy is loudly on display. You know, I have a son, his name is Peter, and he's three years old. And I've noticed that the happier and more excited he gets, the louder he is. He just had a birthday, and one of his presents was a stuffed dinosaur almost as big as he is. and came in this huge package, and he was already excited when he saw it, and as he was opening it, he started shaking. He was so excited. He was 
He was just full of joy. He was passionate about it, and he was shouting his joy to the rooftop. That is a joy that is loudly on display. It's a lot of fun to give gifts to little kids and friends. Our God has given much greater presence to us. It just makes me think, if a stuffed dinosaur is worthy of that much joy and excitement, how much more worthy is Christ to receive joy and excitement? His gifts are far better. His satisfaction is much sweeter. His countenance is more beautiful. His actions are greater. And his offer of love is outrageously amazing. And when he sees fit as the king on high to extend this invitation to worship him, as we look to him, as we behold his glory, are you filled with joy? When we see him like that, when we know Jesus as our Savior, we should praise him passionately. Why? We're reminded of the reason in verse 1. He is the rock of our salvation. This tells us that worship is all about God. And that's so comforting to me. Because it means that my worship of God does not have to be about my preferences. It means that my worship of God does not have to be about my experiences. Worship of God, friends, is not about me. And I praise the Lord for that. Because if worship was about me, then nothing would ever be certain. What might make me rise up and worship God one day will only make me yawn the next day. But God is the object of our worship. He is our rock. He never changes. His worthiness to be worshipped does not fail ever. And as our rock, he is our most sure hope. Because Jesus hung on the cross and suffered under the enormous fury of God's wrath for your sin, if you have been saved today. Does that make you worship your rock? He holds you in his hand. You will have eternal life with him. Though the wind may howl and the waves crash upon you, your rock will never be shaken. And that is where your joy and worship are anchored. Let's look at verse 2. It says, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And again, we have a reminder to come to him. But where in verse 1 it was a command to come, now we are invited to come. This is a king sitting on his throne and reaching his scepter out and drawing you to himself. Think about what it means to enter into the presence of God. What is he like? 
Isaiah 6 gives us just a glimpse of the presence of God. It says, the Lord is sitting on a throne. He is high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Friends, that is the presence of the God that we come to. He is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory, and he wants us to see his glory. When Moses requested to see God's glory in Exodus 34, the Lord let him see it. At least the amount Moses was able to handle. He put Moses in the cleft of the rock, and as Moses was there, as he saw the after image of God's glory, as he heard God proclaim his name, he quickly fell on his face and worshiped God. And friends, that should be our response as well. As we come into the presence of our Savior, we should be full of joy and eager reverence to worship him. This is a joy that is consumed with who God is. This is a worship of God that is not shaken by circumstances. How do we have that kind of joyful worship? Friends, this is so important. We have to understand this. The object of our worship, the anchor of our joy is the rock of our salvation. And so we must fix our eyes on Christ, the rock of our salvation. We must be stubborn and refuse to look away from him. It just makes me think of Chris Gertzen. I remember watching that video she made after her diagnosis and seeing the joy on her face, and hearing the worship in her heart as she said, ALS is the blessed chariot that God is using to bring me home. What an example she is. Her joy and worship was anchored in Christ, and it was loud and undiminished by her trial. That is what the joy in this psalm looks like, friends. This is the joy of Job after he had lost everything that was dear to him that enabled him to worship God. He said, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I want to point out that this joy and thankfulness does not always have to be expressed as loud shouts and songs. Job, when he lost everything that was dear to him, he tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell on the ground. But he worshipped God. Chris was stubborn for God's glory. Even when God took her voice away, she refused to let her gaze drift from her Savior. Sometimes that means we worship with tears as we consider how God has saved our sinful souls. Sometimes that means we cling to him with desperation as he takes us through terrible trials. But no matter what, 
the encouragement we have here is that when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we trust his greatness and goodness, that we can have joy in him no matter what your circumstance may be. God is always worthy of worship. And he invites us to open our eyes and see his worth. He is our rock. Does your heart long to see more of who he is? Do you beg him like Moses did to see his glory? Are you eager to worship him? That's what he wants of us. Let's look at the next reason we must worship God. We worship God because he is great. Verses 3 to 5 of Psalm 95 say, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So we have already seen a compelling reason to worship God in verses 1 and 2. And now... The psalmist tells us that Yahweh is great. This is a common word in the Bible. It means large. It's used to describe great cities that took days to walk across. It's used to describe the ferocity of large storms. And this is how the psalmist begins describing God. He is everywhere. He is all-powerful. He is great. Friends, I am convicted that our God is far bigger than I perceive him to be. I think if I truly comprehended how big he is, if I understood his greatness as he is, then my heart would never lack for reasons to worship him. And I would be doing so constantly. The psalmist says, Yahweh is a great God. He is the great God, and he is a great king above all gods. Two times in this verse, we see the word great. Notice what the psalmist is emphasizing here. God is incomparable, and God rules over everything. The point here is that God has no rivals. He is the supreme king, and that has an implication It means that worship belongs to God alone. Do you believe that? If you say, yes, I believe that, then are you giving him your complete and undistracted worship? That thought has been convicting to me this week. How do we grow in worshiping God alone with no distractions Well, listen to how Psalm 95 helps us. If we are to worship God with undistracted hearts, we must have a proper understanding of who he is. We must see the greatness of God. And John Stott wrote, Not until we grasp who the Lord is are we inwardly moved to worship him. So let's do that. Let's look at how the psalmist shows us who God is. Verses 4 and 5 say, In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. I find that to be so helpful. 
the psalmist has already reminded us that the object of our worship is God. He is the rock of our salvation. He's the anchor for our joy. And now he says, look at what God has made. He points to God's creation that is far beyond us. He drags our eyes down into the depths of the earth and he lifts them up to the peaks of the mountains and he says, God made that. Look at his greatness. He wants us to understand how big and powerful God is. So he gives us this tremendously wide contrast. He refers to the remote, unknown places on earth, the deepest depths and the highest peaks of the earth. And he says, all of that is owned by God. He made it. And this is what the psalmist considered sufficient to compel our hearts to worship. Think about that. I'm going to try and illustrate the greatness of God for you, so just sit back and think about this with me. I did a little bit of research, and I learned that the deepest place on earth is located in the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean. There's a part of this trench that's called the Challenger Deep. Maybe you've heard of this. It is 35,876 feet deep. The floor of the ocean there is almost seven miles below the surface of the sea. You could drop Mount Everest into this hole, and there would still be a mile of water covering its peak. In the 1960s, two courageous men in a submersible descended into this trench, and it took them five hours to get to the bottom. That is a really deep hole. The pressure of the water down there is incredible. Right now, as we sit here, the pressure of the air on our bodies is about 15 pounds per square inch. But down at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, that pressure is 16,000 pounds per square inch. That is enough pressure to squash you like a bug. That kind of pressure can crumble concrete to dust. There's no light down there. You would think it's impossible for anything to survive in that place, but scientists have found colonies of shrimp and marine worms and sea cucumbers, and they are thriving seven miles under the surface of the sea. And God made that place. He intentionally, specifically created this insanely deep hole in our earth where man could not survive, and he covered it up with water, and he filled it up with life. Why would he do that? We can't see it, except for the briefest of moments. All that life down there, the intricacy of creation, it's not for us. It's for him I think this is amazing. I forget that God enjoys his creation. All of it. Even the places that we are not. All of his creation displays his greatness. All of his creation shows the careful and intentional work of the creator. And friends, I am convicted that far too often we are selfish in our worship of God. We're quick to praise God for all the blessings he's given us. But do we praise him for the things he has made that have nothing to do with us? 
The seas and the mountains are his and they display his glory. Do they cause us to see his greatness and worship God? Let's look at another example of God's greatness. We're rather familiar with the peaks of the mountains, so let me try and lift our eyes up to something farther away. Have you ever heard of the James Webb Space Telescope? Maybe you have. I think that it's amazing that God would allow us to create something like that. This telescope cost our nation $10 billion, and it took 17 years to build. It was launched into space in 2021, and it sits in orbit one million miles away from Earth. It's looking farther than we have ever been able to see before, and it is taking some pictures that are just astounding. I got these from a NASA website called webtelescope.org, and here's one now. Just look at that. You see that? That is a real picture of space. I can barely believe that. What looks like orange mountains or gas clouds that the scientists call the cosmic cliffs. All those sparkly lights you see are stars. And what we're looking at is the edge. Keep in mind it's only the edge of a giant gaseous cavity in space. And here's what really blows my mind. Those orange clouds that look like mountains are about seven light years tall. I didn't know how far a light year was, so I looked it up. It's about six trillion miles per light year. So we are looking at clouds that are 42 trillion miles high. That's mind-boggling to me. Look at that. Every particle of dust is exactly where God wants it to be. The stars are placed perfectly in his will. They shine as he sees fit. He tells space what to do, and it obeys. Look at the greatness of God. Here's another picture. Isn't that beautiful? You know what that is? That is a star that blew up. That must have been a huge star because this picture is about 10 light years across and the explosion is filling up that entire picture. This explosion makes the orange cloud in the other picture look small. A fraction of the power in this exploding star would evaporate our planet and God is in control of all of it. 1 Corinthians 1, or Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. We can't forget this. For him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1, 3 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And verses 4 and 5 of our psalm declare that all things are in his hand. That's incredible to me. Think how big God must be to hold that exploding star in his hands. It did not explode until he allowed it to. And his hand contains the explosion to where he wants it to go. And in his strength, 
In his awesome power, his hands raised up mountains and drove the depths into the earth. He set boundaries for the sea and the dry land. He made life, and with his hands, he took the dust of the earth, and he formed man into his image. Why? So that we could look at the greatness of God and worship him. He is bigger than all of creation. He owns it. He rules it. And he is worthy of our worship. And for us, as we consider the height and the depth of creation, the seas and the land and the wide expanses of space, I just wonder, does that cause you to worship your God? All of creation is right now declaring glory to its creator. Do you? All of creation is about God. He is the creator king, and that is why he is worthy to be worshipped. And friends, if we are to worship this God with undistracted hearts, we must have a consuming vision of who he is. We must see God's greatness. It's evident in creation, and here's what I find encouraging about this. Our God who holds the explosive power of that star in his hand, cradles your life in his other hand. There is nothing that happens to you outside of his loving embrace. Romans 8, 38 and 39 say, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this is your great God that holds you in his hand, and he is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your joy, and he is worthy of your worship. Let's look at our next point. We worship God with all our life. Verses 6 and 7 say, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. This is the pinnacle of this psalm. In light of God's greatness, as we see a fraction of His majesty, as we observe his power over all of creation, what should we do? Look at verse 6. This great God speaks. He says, come to me. In the scope of all of creation, we are an insignificant blip. We are a sinful people. We were born as children of wrath. We hated God. And yet... He invites us to turn from our sin and come to him. Psalm 103, 11 to 14 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Friends, this is the heart of our God. He wants us to come near and worship him. This is why we were made. 
when Adam and Eve were in the garden, God would come and walk with them. This great God who holds the stars in his hands, who's far bigger and more powerful than we can ever comprehend, delighted in their presence. How amazing. And he would delight in being with you as well. So our response to this should be to bow down and worship him. This has the idea of putting your face on the floor. It's a posture of total submission to someone who is greater than us. God alone is worthy of our undistracted worship. And that, friends, is a proper response to his greatness. God holds our lives in his hands. He is the great uncreated king. And as we come into his presence, we fall on our face and we worship him. We must kneel before the Lord, our maker. Kneeling is a position of reverence or adoration. And all three of these words, to worship and bow down and kneel, speak of a proper reverence for God. This is what an all-consuming, delightful, reverent worship of God looks like. With joyful obedience, we humble ourselves before God. We're different than the world, friends. We need to remember that. The world worships gods they have made, but we worship a God who made us and all the world. And the psalmist is reminding us that as God made all creation, as he made the depths of the earth and the peaks of the mountains and the seas and the dry land, he also made you. All of us are owned by God. As the mountains and the stars belong to him, we do as well. And that means that he has the right to tell us what to do with our lives. I'm guessing that some of you didn't like hearing that just now. Some of you have not turned from your sin and rebellion against God and ran to him and begged him to forgive your sins. Some of you have yet to believe that Jesus is your Lord. And if that is you, I have a question. Why are you waiting? This great God invites you to come to him. But make no mistake, every second you delay, your soul is in danger. You don't know when your last breath will be. So I would beg you, turn to Jesus. Plead with him to save you before it's too late. If you have questions about that, I would love to talk with you. I would love to care for you. And please come find me later. And friends, if you are here this morning and you are saved, this passage is a blessed encouragement, but it's a strong warning to us as well. Too often I fear that we forget the greatness and majesty of our God. We forget that he owns us. We forget that as 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, we were bought with a price and have been instructed to glorify God in our body. How do we do that? Well, we glorify God in our bodies by turning away from the sin that used to have a hold on us and delighting in worshiping him. Does that characterize your life? Does your life reflect a delighted worshiper of Jesus? Christian, if you hear that, and it's hard... If your heart is weighed down, if your life is burdened with sin and distractions, I would like to encourage you with this, if you'll allow me to. 
for a moment, will you lift up your eyes to Jesus? Listen to his heart. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, Jesus himself speaks, and he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christian, that is the heart of your God. He invites you to come to him and cast off all your burdens. He invites you to learn from him. And if you do that, if you take on his yoke, you will find true rest. This absolute soul-consuming worship of God that may seem daunting in this moment will become delightful. If you are saved, you are his. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That's so encouraging to me. It's a reminder that Jesus pursued us to salvation and he still pursues us now. He cares for us. Like he pursued Peter when he denied him and would not let him go, he will not let you go either. Like a shepherd, he cares for us. You know, shepherds work hard. They do menial work. They don't feast in the city. They sleep with the sheep. They drive off wolves. They pull stuck sheep out of crevices. They pursue stubborn sheep. They restore sick ones to health, and they nurse young ones to maturity. And that is what God does for you. For a God as great and powerful and majestic as our God who holds the universe in his hands to stoop down to us, to do this kind of work in our sinful souls is an act of infinite love. What a love he has for us. Christian, this is your God. You are the sheep of his hands. These are the same hands that hold the stars and form the depths of the oceans and the heights of the mountains. These are the hands that formed our inward parts and wove us in our mother's womb. These are the hands that purify the unclean, healed the sick, gave the blind sight, and brought the dead to life. These are the hands that beckoned the children to come to him. These are the hands that were stretched out and pierced for our transgression. These are the hands that hold you, friends. And these hands will one day wipe the tears from our eyes as we behold the face of our Savior. This, these are the hands of Jesus himself. In John 10, 27, 28, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And Christian, what security you have in God's hands. See the peace and the provision and the joy that you have. Jesus is very great, and he is very good. He is worthy of all of our praise. And when we see him like that, when our minds tremble under the weight of his greatness and are built up by his goodness, is it not a joy to delight in humbling ourselves so we can worship our God? That is his invitation to you. He longs for you to come and worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord your maker. Will you hear his voice and obey him? This is what your king expects of you. 
And he warns you of the danger you face when you ignore him. Let's look at our last point. Heed the warning of rejecting God's call. The rest of verse 7 through verse 8 says, Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness. This is an urgent and a sober warning, friends. God does not mess around with his worship, and he interrupts this call to worship to give us this warning. He says, today, the opportunity is not tomorrow. It is right now. Do not be like Israel. Israel sinned against God when they tested him in the wilderness, even though his presence was before them as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. He saved them many times. He fed them. He cared for their needs. He kept his promises. And they responded in unbelief. This is not about their lack of understanding. They understood God's call. And yet, they deliberately refused to worship God. They hardened their hearts, and instead of worshiping God, they tested God. And look at how God feels about that. Notice the language in these verses. In verses 9 to 11, God himself interrupts the psalmist. This is no longer a psalmist calling us to remember God's greatness and goodness. This is the voice of Yahweh himself, and he speaks. And he says in verse 9, When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That is sobering. Do you hear the rage of God against those who refuse to hear his voice and worship him? God is so full of righteous anger at sin. And to know that his wrath builds up against you if you have not turned from your sin and believed in him is terrifying. Verse 10 says, they do not know my ways. This means they do not understand or appreciate God's grace toward them. They refuse to understand God's greatness and goodness. That Israel, a people who was set apart by God, did not actually know him is shocking. And the problem was their unbelief. They saw God, but they doubted his word and his character. And here's the sobering thing about that. God loathes that response. He hates it. What a strong warning. And then he concludes with a scary promise. He says in verse 11, Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. For Israel, their rest was the promised land. And in God's greatness, he had to respond to their unbelief. He had to keep them from the promised land. Because if God would allow a doubting, disbelieving people to enter his rest, he would no longer be great. This is about his character and our response to it. And we are not exempted from this warning, friends. The rest that God promises to us is to be in heaven with Jesus for all eternity. But that is a conditional promise. 
to have that promise, to experience the goodness of our great God, then you must come and bow down and worship him. It is not enough to hear God's call to worship. You must respond today. So let me ask you this. Have you believed in Jesus? Are you a true worshiper of Yahweh? Listen to Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And friends, I would plead with every one of you that is here today, make sure that you are saved. Pray to God and ask him to help you examine your heart. Look at your life. Are you being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? When you stand before God, will he welcome you as his child or will he cast you into hell? This is serious. As you examine your life, if God is revealing to you that you are not saved, and I want to let you know I have good news for you, friend. Jesus, the great and majestic King, is standing before you even now, and he is holding out his hand to you, his hand of great power. And he says in John six thirty seven, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Come to Jesus. Here's what you need to know. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, it says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Jesus is the Son of God, and he willingly came to this earth, and he lived a perfect life, and he hung on the cross while God emptied his great fury against sin on him. And he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day, and now, today, he offers salvation to you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you do that, you will be saved. That's what Romans 10, 9, and 10 say. Friends, today is the day. Don't wait Cry out to Jesus, confess your sin, believe in him, and beg him to save you. And if you are saved this morning, then worship Jesus for being the rock of your salvation. He is the great God, there is none other, and he who holds exploding stars in his hands. He allowed his hands to be stretched out and pierced for you. And when we're saved, there is nothing that can take us out of his hand. He is so good to us, friends. And in response, his call on our lives in Psalm 95 is that we come to him joyfully, that we worship him fully and bow down and kneel before him with reverent submission and obedience. God says, today, if you hear my voice, see him as your great and good Savior and worship him like that. You have heard his voice. Please, listen to him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and 
What is there to say in light of your greatness and your goodness except thank you? You have seen fit to allow us to know who you are. You created us specifically and intricately with intention so that we could worship you. And I would beg you, Father, please work in all of our hearts here this morning so that we may be true and delighted worshipers of you. In your name we pray, amen.